Well, as advertised, we are starting a new series this morning. Uh, we will pick back up with Ephesians in a few weeks, so be in prayer for that. And this morning we are going to start on the series on the Word of God. I've, been, I've titled this sermon this morning, The Hand of God or Men? Question mark. And I hope that in the next two weeks to show you the answer to that question. I hope that in the next two weeks I can show you uh, through the Word of God itself that we truly have the Word of God. Let me read 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 to start our time. And then I'll pray. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, read, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, or adequate, that is, equipped for every good work. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that we can come and gather. Father, we pray for this time of preaching, that it would be true worship to you. Lord, I pray that you would be with me as the preacher, that you would use the things that I say this morning for your glory, that I would decrease, you would increase. We know that your word will not return void. In Christ's name, amen. Have you ever wondered how the Christian church came to acknowledge the content of the Bible that you hold in your hands? You may be tempted to believe that we as the church came to these 66 books of the Protestant canon through some easy process where everyone agreed that each book should be included. In reality, the history of the biblical canon is more akin to a roller coaster ride, or maybe a white whitewater river rafting ride. There's many twists and turns, and many ups and downs, and sometimes we lose people out of the boat. Did you know that some Christians acknowledged? even acknowledged New Testament books that were later rejected by the church. In addition to our current New Testament books, many Christians even cited books like the Epistle of Barnabas and the Shepherd of Hermes as being canon. You may not realize that some canonical books were disputed before they were recognized. Origen mentioned that Second Peter... 2nd and 3rd John and James were disputed by some folks in his day. Dionysius of Alexandria says that some thought that the Apostle Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ was not written by the Apostle and should therefore be rejected. As most of you know, the Roman Catholic Bible, if you go pick one up today, contains the Apocrypha, which was canonized, if you will, in the 16th century. 
And Martin Luther, who we hold dear, had this to say in 1522 about the epistle of James in the preface of his German translation of the New Testament. He says this, St. James' epistle is a really a right straw-y epistle, epistle of straw, if you will, compared to these others, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, 1 Peter, 1 John, for it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it, end quote. Now we should recognize quickly that he wrote this in the early days of the Reformation in the heat of the battle with the Roman Catholic Church regarding justification. And there's very little doubt that the Roman Catholic Church gave him much grief over James's words in James 2 regarding faith and work. Works, that is. And we should also mention that he removed that statement from all subsequent editions. But the damage had been done. Today, Luther is known as a detractor of James, especially in the Roman Catholic Church. They use that against him. You can Google it right now and find articles of how Luther rejected James. But we must realize that the battle for canonicity was not an easy one. Each of the books in the New Testament canon won a hard-fought battle for inclusion. Now, we may be tempted to believe, as some contend, that the New Testament canon was decided upon in Nicaea in 325 A.D. under the heavy fist of Constantine. This claim was actually popularized in Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code. It would be easy for us to imagine that the New Testament canon was decided upon in a smoky back room with among a few powerful men. But this couldn't be further from the truth. We might also be tempted to be concerned because the Bible was not directly handed down on some golden tablets by an angel from heaven, such as the Book of Mormon supposedly was. You might be disturbed that there are multiple transcripts floating around, if you will, and that they all contain some scribal errors. After all, we're talking about the inerrant Word of God, right? As you know, and I'm mentioning some attacks on Scripture, as you know, there have been a myriad of attacks. Perhaps you have some questions right now in your mind and heart regarding the Bible. Perhaps you have been challenged by someone you know regarding the truth of Scripture and whether you can even trust it or not and whether Scripture is truly Scripture or whether we don't have or whether we have what we what we have in our Bible is it, it shouldn't be added to. Maybe you've read things. I know I was studying for this series and I was reading some things on the internet. Maybe, you know, some things that question the validity of our Bible. Maybe you've read things that make you question your belief in the Word of God. At least make you wonder, right? Quite possibly, you believe the Word of God is to be trusted. Quite probably you do. But maybe you can't defend it. During these next six weeks, we hope to show you that the Bible is completely unlike any other book. I want to prove to you that the Bible has been handed down to us by God, and we can trust it. That it has been inspired by the Holy Spirit. That it is without error, therefore can rightly be called the inerrant word. 
that it is open and transparent, that is, open and transparent to those who are earnest in reading it and studying it, and that it is sufficient in and of itself. I hope that you will see ultimately the Bible is sufficient. It doesn't require any supplement. In fact, that's how this this series has been laid out. We will look at, first, this morning, we're going to look at the canon of Scripture. Second, we're going to look at the, next week, we're going to look at the inspiration of Scripture. Then we're going to look at the inerrancy of Scripture. Then we're going to look at the clarity of Scripture. And lastly, we're going to come back to the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, as most of you know, the exposition of Scripture is the second pillar in GBC's Gainesville's philosophy of ministry. This is one of our pillar pillars because we believe that Scripture undergirds all that we do. But we must answer the question, why is that true? Why is that true? Well, in this series, we will assert that God's divine power has granted us to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who has called us by His own glory and excellence. Well, those are, of course, the words of the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 1, 3, and 4. We should recognize, though, that Peter wrote this to assure his people that the teaching about Jesus' return is authentic and reliable, that he and others didn't just make up the stories. His preaching is based on his firsthand experience of Jesus, which included the, the miracles of the transfiguration, the miracle of the resurrection, and the miracle of the ascension. But here's what's amazing, and this is how it ties into what we're talking about this morning. As life-changing as those experiences were, Peter appealed to something greater than his own understanding of those events. And you say, well, how so? He appealed to the truth of Scripture. In 2 Peter 1.19, he says this. He says, so we have the prophetic word made more sure. The Net Bible says this, we possess the prophetic word as an altogether reliable thing. You would do well if you pay attention to this, as you would to a light shining in a murky place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. So what is this prophetic word that Peter is talking about? I would argue that he's referring to Scripture. He goes on to proclaim, again, the, the New English translation puts it this way, in 1 Peter 1.20, he says this, Above all, you do well if you recognize this. No prophecy of Scripture ever comes about by the prophet's own imagination. Did you pick that up? He's saying, look, I saw what I saw. But what, I, what has been written in Scripture is not my imagination. Then he goes on in verse 21, For no prophecy ever, was ever born of human impulse. Rather, men carried along by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. As, as such, Peter proclaims that Scripture far exceeds experience, even arguably the greatest experience any human has ever undergone. Can you imagine being on that mountain when Jesus was transfigured, when he show, showed his glory to, to those who were there? 
And I'm certain we will revisit Peter's words as we progress in this series. Before we dive, dive in, though, let me give you some qualifiers about this series. This, is not, this series is not designed to convince unbelievers of the truthfulness of Scripture. It is designed, though, to give the believer confidence in the Word of God. I don't intend this to be six dry lectures, even though there will be some heavy lifting. I want this series to inflame your passion for and your love for the Word of God. But you have to understand, this is a two-way street. To get the most out of this series, you must come, as you do any time, to the preaching of the Word. Prepared. Praying for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Praying for each preacher who comes to bring their, their perspective subject matter. And praying for your own heart to be softened to hear and to understand. Let's get started by looking at the canon of Scripture. And in doing so, we will use the following proposition statement that's in your, it's in your bulletin. The proposition statement is this. Here at Grace Bible Church, Gainesville, we maintain that God the Holy Spirit inspired the writing of the, of the Old and New Testaments, including the formation of the canon. Therefore, we believe and assert, number one, that the Holy Spirit administered the formation of the canon. Let's look at this first assertion. You may be asking, why would I start here? Why would I start with the canon of Scripture? Well, these first two weeks in this series are designed to give you a greater confidence in the Bible that you hold, that the Bible that you hold is, in fact, the Word of God. Now, I should give you some foundational material before we, regarding, before we get completely started regarding the biblical canon. The Bible is a collection of 66 documents which are inspired by God. We believe these documents are self-authenticating. Now, there are 39 of these documents in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament. The authors of the Old Testament were prophets, priests, kings, and leaders of the nation Israel moved by the Holy Spirit to write the words of Scripture. The authors of the New Testament, very importantly, were the apostles of Jesus Christ and their close associates. Now, in this discussion, we must answer a few questions. Why are there 66 books, 39 plus 27? Do we have the right books? Should there be more? Should there be less? And why do we have the Bible that we have? Why is the Bible that we, we hold, why is it the Bible we have? And why do others who call themselves Christian have different Bibles, such as the Mor or Mormons who call themselves Christians? Why do they have something else, like the Book of Mormon? Why does the Roman Catholic Church have extra books in the Bible? Well, let's start by looking at a definition, the definition of canon. And the definition of canon at first started to mean uh, stood for a rod or a reed. Then it began to refer to a measuring rod or a ruler, presumably, presumably because someone used a reed to set a standard of measurement. 
Therefore, it came to be the word for measure or standard. So therefore, when we refer to the canon of the Bible, we're referring to a collection of authoritative writings. Now notice that I said the writings themselves are authoritative. This is true because we assert, we believe, that it was God who determined the canon. And if it's God who could determine the canon, therefore we believe that the, the writings themselves are authoritative because they, have, they carry the very authority of God. We believe that God was faithful through the transmission of these books of the Bible from the time they were penned. He, he was faithful to, from the time they were penned to providentially preserving them for mankind. Now, he preserved them through just normal means, which is even more amazing. Now, I want you to understand, we merely recognize which books have been inspired and preserved by God. We merely recognize it. Canonicity, then, is defined as the recognition of the inspired books that God preserved and collected the collection of them into one volume to be used as a measuring rod of human life. Now, it must be established that the recognition of these books does not establish them as Scripture, but vindicates what has been long established. As such, it's important to understand that no human institution has given or authenticated the canon of Scripture. There was no council that determined what was worthy of being put into Scripture. It was simply recognizing what was already part of Scripture. In other words, we believe that God guided the church in recognition of the canon. Michael Kruger says this in his book, The Canon Revisited. He says the insistence that the canon can be proven true by an outside authority raises a host of of theological and biblical questions. What he's saying is that if a human institution such as the Catholic Church or a church council proves the canon to be true, then those institutions become more authoritative than Scripture itself. Now this would be a major theological problem. Richard Gaffin says this. He was the, a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary. He says, such an approach is in danger of subjecting the canon to the relatively, relativity, that is, of historical study and fallible human insight and destroy the New Testament as authority. He goes on. In the, in the final analysis, the attempt to demonstrate criteria of canonicity seeks from a position above the canon to rationalize or generalize about the canon. Instead, we must recognize the canon as self-authenticating, self-validating. Instead of sitting in judgment on the canon, we must recognize the New Testament as self, and the New and Old Testament as self-authenticating. Then he says this, most importantly, and I read this earlier. Since the Bible was breathed out by God, 2 Timothy 3.16 it bears its own mark of authority, dependability, and authenticity. Therefore, we must recognize 
that the canon of Scripture bears the mark of God being God-breathed. It bears the unmistakable marks of the Holy Spirit. Dr. Stonehouse, also of Westminster, says this, Although it is highly important that this historical process of trying to recognize which books are to be included should be studied and analyzed as part of our effort to comprehend the implication of the church's doctrine of Scripture, we also insist that the comprehension of the whole development depends on a recognition of divine control of history and of the special guidance of the Spirit of God. End quote. As such, the existence of the canon is due to God and God alone. Scripture is God-breathed, and the canon, we believe the canon was superintended, the re- that God superintended the recognition of the canon. John Calvin says that God alone is a fit witness of His Word, and Scripture is is indeed self-authenticated. So as believers, we should recognize that when we read a book of the Bible, the Holy Spirit affirms the truth of the Word, the truth of His Word. You know, we have access. You can get access to Christian literature from the early church. This literature can actually be edifying and useful, especially for history. But we have to recognize that it's not authoritative and that the Holy Spirit does not affirm the truth of it in our hearts. It makes sense, though, that the Holy Spirit would affirm the truth of Scripture. In John 10, 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. We're hearing the voice of Christ when we read Scripture. Therefore, we hear it. We, it. It's affirmed to us. Now, when we speak of the canon, we're speaking of the, of the book of Genesis written by Moses all the way to the book of Revelation that was written by the Apostle John, the last living apostle. So the, the, the time span of the Bible starts at the beginning of time and ends at the culmination of history. We believe that Moses wrote the first five books of, of the Bible, in Gen, of, including Genesis. He wrote them in 1445. The last Old Testament book was written in, in late 400 B.C. with the last New Testament book written in 95 to 96, at which time the canon was closed. Now, it's important, the reason I bring this up, it's important to understand that the canon was closed between 400 at the, at the last Old Testament book and when the apostles began to write in, at, after Christ's death and resurrection. Let's look at our second assertion, and I think this will feed into what? Into the second assertion. That Jesus affirmed the Old Testament canon. Jesus affirmed the Old Testament canon. Now, we need to take a moment and, and define a, again the extent. We've, we've said it's 39 books, but what we need to realize is that the, the Jewish canon that was familiar to Jesus and the apostles contained 22 books, in some cases 24, but mostly 22. The Jewish canon combined several books, and the order was a little different. Just as an example, <coughs> as an example, 
Uh, Samuel, first and second Samuel was one book, Samuel. First and second Kings was one book, Kings. Same with first and second Chronicles. The, the minor prophets were, were called the twelve. It was one book. Ezra and Nehemiah was combined in one, one book. Judges and Ruth was combined in one book. And Jeremiah and Lamentations was also combined. Now, as I said, we know that, that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. If you, if you look at John 1.45, you'll see Philip, and it says in, in John 1.45 that Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So we see that, that Moses is attributed to writing the law. Now we know that, that Moses wrote in the wilderness after crossing the Red Sea and after he received the tablets at Mount Sinai from God. The law then is, was known as the Torah. We also, can, we also know it as the Pentateuch. It's the first five books of the Old Testament. Now, he would have, finished, he would have begun writing Genesis and finished with Deuteronomy, and he would have given that, that body of information to Joshua and the Levites. And he wrote them specifically so that the Israelites would know their history. They had been taken into Egypt and then taken out of Egypt, and now they were in the wilderness and were going to begin to settle the promised land. And so he wrote the first five books so that they would know their history and they would know the law of God. So we know that Jesus himself affirmed the writings of Moses. In Luke 16.29, as part of the story of the rich man and Lazarus, told by Jesus. Now, so, so it says Abraham said, but these are actually the words of Jesus. It says this, But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear. Moses and, and the prophets. And he goes on in verse 31, But he said to him, them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be, uh, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Therefore, Jesus gave an affirmation of Moses' writing, the first five books of the New Testament. He also, in this, affirmed the writing of the prophets. These were men known as the prophets because they were, these men were known as the prophets because they were prophetic, because they wrote Scripture. These are men like Jeremiah and Isaiah and, and Malachi. In fact, God used about 40 authors to write the Bible, although we don't know the author of every book of the Old Testament, or, or in the New Testament, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. But we do know that uh, the Apostle Peter tells us how they wrote. In, in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, it says, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, we've already read this earlier, is as a matter of one's own interpretation, but no prophecy of Scripture was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So what we have is, is that Jesus is affirming, He's affirming that, it, that the Scriptures were written by Moses and the prophets. And we'll get into this further next week when we study the inspiration of the Scripture. But the idea is that these men were carried along or borne along by the Holy Spirit. Now, as we've said, Jesus affirmed the Old Testament. Specifically, he affirmed the authority and the canonicity of the Old Testament. Turn to Luke 24. 
In Luke 24, he, this is on the road to Emmaus. He says this, it says, he said to them, in 20, Luke 24, verse 25, he said to them, O foolish men, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So again, we see the affirmation, the affirmation that Jesus makes that the scriptures were handed down by Moses and the prophets. If you look down in verse 44, he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written by, about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. As such, Jesus affirmed the threefold division of the Old Testament canon that would have been understood at that day. The, the Torah, or the Law, written by Moses. The Prophets, which include the former Prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. The latter Prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve, the, the minor Prophets, the Twelve. The, and the Writings, the Psalms, the Wisdom Books, plus Esther, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. So as such, he affirmed the Old Testament canon. Now this was the common understanding of Jesus' time of the division of the Old Testament. Again, the Torah, the, the law, the prophets, and the writings. Now turn to Matthew 23. I want you to see this. In Matthew 23, I told you guys this would be a little bit of heavy lifting this morning, but I think it'll be well worth it for you. Starting in verse 34, this is uh, Jesus pronouncing woes against or upon the scribes and Pharisees, whom he called hypocrites. Starting in verse 34, it says, Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that, and then verse 35, this is an important verse for this discussion, so that you may... so that you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Now, righteous Abel, what's that a reference to? Genesis, right? So he's saying from, from Genesis... So that's an obvious reference to Genesis chapter 4. Then he says, Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. That's not so obvious. Well, what we have to understand is Zechariah is chronologically, or is not chronologically that way, that is, the last martyr named in the Old Testament. So this may be a little bit difficult to understand, but actually what's happening is he's alluding to 2 Chronicles 24, 21. Now earlier I mentioned that the Jewish canon 
is not ordered the same as the one we have. It's, it's content, same content, but in a different order. What we need to recognize is that Chronicles is the last book of the Jewish Old Testament canon. It's the last book that, Jew, that, that Jesus would have seen as, as, the, as the Old Testament. David Dunbar says this. It is assumed that Zechariah is mentioned here because by New Testament times, Chronicle is under, Chronicles is understood to be the last book in the Hebrew Bible. Therefore, Jesus' statement would mean the blood of all the martyrs mentioned in the Old Testament. Now, what's amazing about that is, amazingly, with this statement, Jesus affirms the entire Old Testament canon from Genesis to Chronicles. You see how important that is? That the Bible that you and I hold, the Old Testament that you and I hold, Jesus affirmed it. And it consists of the very same content that we have in our Old Testament. I hope that gives you confidence. He accepted the canon of the Jewish people as being the complete Old Testament, which is the same canon we hold today of the Old Testament. Therefore, Jesus did not consider the apocryphal books, the books that were written between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New, he did not consider them to be canonical. He did not reference them at all. He never affirmed or, or cited them, and neither do the writers, any of the writers of the New Testament. A study of the Gospels shows that Throughout his ministry, Jesus affirmed the Old Testament in, his, in, in its entirety, including its historical reliability, its, its prophetic accuracy, its sufficiency, its unity, its inerrancy, its infallibility, and its authority. And if you would like to know some of those scriptures, I can give those to you later. I would, don't have time to go through them at the moment. He affirmed the law, the writings, and the prophets, and all that was written in them. He clearly saw the 39 books that we have of the Old Testament as being the Word of God. Nathan Boosman says this, We believe in the 39 books of the Old Testament because our Lord Jesus Christ affirmed the Old Testament. And we believe in the 27 books of the New Testament because our Lord Jesus Christ authorized His apostles to write the New Testament. End quote. Now we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves when we talk about the New Testament. Let's look at our third assertion. This goes quicker. Extra-biblical sources asserted the Old Testament canon. Now this obviously doesn't carry the same weight as our Lord's affirmation, but I think it's worth mentioning. Philo, he was a Jew who lived between 25 B.C. and 50 A.D., so his lifetime spanned the life of Christ. He was born a few years before Christ and died when the New Testament was beginning to be penned. In his writings, he had 2,000 quotes from the Torah, the writings of Moses. He quoted the rest of the Old Testament about 50 times. He did not quote the Apocrypha. And Josephus, Jewish historian who turned to the Romans, 
says we have but 22 books containing the history of all time, books that are justly believed in, and of these, five are the books of Moses, which comprise the law and the earliest traditions from creation of mankind down to his death, from the death of Moses to the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, the successor of Xerxes, the prophets who succeeded Moses, wrote the history of the events that occurred in their own time in 13 books. The remaining four documents comprise hymns to God and practical precepts to men. So he affirmed 22, uh, 22 books of the Hebrew Scripture. Let's look at our fourth assertion. The early church acknowledged the Old Testament canon. It's important to note the extent to which the, the apostles in the early church affirmed the canon of the Old Testament. They certainly affirmed the 22 books. They directly quote the Old Testament 250 times in the New Testament. They also allude to its words more than 900 times. Amazingly, if you do the math, that's a quote or an allusion about once every seven verses. Even more astounding, the New Testament does not quote or allude to any of the apocryphal books. giving clear evidence they do not see these as canonical. I'm going to jump the gun just a bit to the New Testament. We can clearly prove that the New Testament authors saw the Old Testament as Scripture, but what about each other's writing? How did they view them? I think we can answer this question. I think the answer to this question will help us understand their high view of the Old Testament and New Testament Scripture. Turn with me real quickly to 1 Timothy 5. Verse 18 says this, For Scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his, of his wages. Now under the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul quotes an Old Testament scripture, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. But he also quotes a New Testament scripture out of Luke 10, 10, 7. In Luke 10, 7, it's, this is from the Lord sending the 70 out, and he says this, 10, 7, stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep from or do not keep moving from house to house. Therefore, what we see is the New Testament writer, Paul, quoting New Testament Scripture on par with Old Testament Scripture. This is an indication that, that an authoritative New Testament canon is in process even at this very early stage of development. For another quick example, turn over to 2 Peter 3, 14-16. says this, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you. Also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which some things are hard to understand. Then he says this, 
which the untaught and unstable distort as they do also the rest of the Scriptures to their own destruction. So what Paul is saying, the rest of Scripture would be Old Testament. Therefore, in the eyes of Peter, Paul's letters were just as authoritative as Old Testament Scripture. This leads us to our fifth, it's a great transition to our fifth assertion, that Jesus authorized the New Testament canon. He authorized the New Testament canon. just want to remind you, that he affirmed the Old Testament canon. Now we're see, going to see that he authorized the New Testament canon. Our Lord not only said what was, what was the New Testament, but he also authorized his representatives, namely the apostles, to write the, the, to write the New Testament. You turn over to John 14. I want you to see this for yourselves. In John 14... Verse 25 says this, But these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And the last line, I think, is especially significant for the doctrine of canonicity. Jesus promised His disciples that the Holy Spirit would help them remember all the things that Jesus had said. Now, that's a, an amazing promise, right? Which Peter alludes to in 2 Peter 1.21, the doctrine of inspiration, which we'll explore next week. And where do we find the fulfillment of Jesus' promise? We find it in the four gospel accounts where everything that the Lord did is perfectly recorded to, for us. Now I say everything, everything that He wanted us to know. It's perfectly recorded for us. Now quickly turn to John 16. In the same context, our Lord promises the apostles that He would give them additional revelation through the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 12. It says this, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them all now. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak of His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take of Mine, and He will disclose to you. All things that the Father has are Mine, therefore I, sa therefore I said what He takes of Mine, He will disclose and I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. And where is this additional revelation found? It's found in the New Testament, especially the New Testament epistles, where the Spirit of Christ guided the apostles to provide the church with inspired truth. Therefore, what's happening here is that the New Testament was pre-authenticated by Christ himself as he authorized his apostles to be his witnesses in the world. Now this is very important. We embrace and submit to the New Testament writings because they were penned by Christ's authorized representatives, being inspired by the Holy Spirit in the same way as the Old Testament prophets. 
Nathan Buzanich says this, The doctrine of canonicity ultimately comes back to the lordship of Christ. If we believe in Him and submit to His authority, we will simultaneously believe in and submit to His Word. Because He affirmed the Old Testament canon, we also affirm it. Because, we, because He authorized His apostles to write the New Testament, we likewise embrace it as well. End quote. This leads us to our sixth, sixth assertion. The apostles authored or affirmed each New Testament book. Now, this goes quickly. With the previous quote in mind, we can go through the New Testament and we will find that each book meets this standard. What standard is that? A standard of apostles, authored by apostles or a close associate of the apostles. The Gospels of Matthew and John were both written by apostles. The Gospel of Mark is a record of the memoirs of the Apostle Peter written by Mark under Peter's apostolic authority. The Gospel of Luke, Luke and Acts as one, were the product of careful, and careful investigation and eyewitness testimony, and research that would have included apostolic sources. Moreover, as the companion of the Apostle Paul, Luke wrote under Paul's apostolic oversight. And for instance, Paul actually, going back to what we said earlier, Paul actually affirmed Luke 10.7, as being part of the Scripture in 1 Timothy 5.18. The Pauline epistles were all written by the Apostle Paul. The authorship of, the, of Hebrews is unknown, but many believe that it was written by Paul, if not penned by Paul, probably someone closely associated but with Paul, therefore under his apostolic authority. The general epistles, uh, the letters of James, Peter, and John were written by apostles. Peter acknowledged Paul's writing as being Scripture. We saw that earlier. The epistle of Jude was written by the half-brother of Jesus. Finally, the book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John. So we see that the New Testament was written under apostolic authority. Thus we submit to them as being scripture because Jesus authorized them to write the New Testament canon and I have point seven or assertion seven but I believe we're going to stop here just a lot of quotes from the early church uh, showing that they acknowledge the Jewish canon as well as the New Testament canon being formed. If you would like to have a copy or some of these quotes, come see me. I hope I hope this is helpful. I know again it's it probably felt a little bit like a lecture at times. 
and I didn't mean it to, to feel that way. I hope that as we go along in this series that it'll begin to feel more and more we'll be able to, to celebrate what we're learning, if you will, and we'll be able to see more and more of what, how God has superintended the process and the reason why Scripture is different. Scripture is what Scripture is. It was breathed out by God, written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It is authoritative. 